Thanks, John. Um, he's absolutely right, um, so be prepared. We are going to be uh, jumping around a little bit tonight in, in the Scripture. Um, uh, so uh, let's read, uh, first of all, uh, in the book of Genesis, as where it all began. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then, so jump to the other end of your Bible, um, to the book of Revelation. And uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Um, uh, uh, before that, just a description of all of the tribes uh, of Israel and the people uh, counted before the Lord. And then in verse 9 it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a long, a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Now, we will be reading other scriptures as we go through, so be prepared to have your Bible ready to go there. But let's pray uh, before we begin. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace and your favor. We thank you that we are created in your image and that we are created for a purpose and we are created to be yours. And so, Lord, we ask that as we look into your word tonight, that you, by your spirit, the spirit of truth, will lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, before I, I begin, I really need to make a disclaimer here because probably in terms of mission, I'm not necessarily the best person to uh, preach to you about mission. There are others far more experienced and probably able than I am to do so. We have folks like Harry and Ray who are part of the church here and, and uh, David Ellis and others who have given up uh, everything to go and serve God in other parts of the world. And uh, so, that's not been the calling that God has given to me necessarily, but it's uh, certainly uh, one which I admire and one which I'm sure God will bless uh, and, and repay in days to come. Um, my involvement in mission, I mean, I began in mission 30 years ago this year, in fact, uh, heading out to Uganda for the very first time. And I would love to spend the next half an hour or so uh, telling you all about that and all the stories that we've gathered together on the way um, and showing you some slides of things that have gone on and so on. But I'm not going to do that because, well, I'll leave that for another time. And uh, so if I get asked back again, that is. And uh, so, but what I want to do is, is focus on God's plan and God's plan for salvation. Um, mission has, has changed over the years. Um, involvement in mission has become in some ways, in terms of international mission, more, uh, more straightforward because people can go and come back again uh, very quickly. Um, 
flying around the world has become one of these things which just about everybody does. If you're not going on holiday, then you're going on mission, um, or you're going for a tour of the world somehow, or if you're like uh, this young man here heading to Brazil for a, a working holiday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, mission has changed, and so it used to be that missionaries would uh, go on a boat, head away for very uh, long periods of time, come back on furlough uh, for uh, short periods of time, and then head off again. And some went out for the rest of their lives. Some would pack their belongings into a coffin. And the first thing they did when they went there would be to find out where they were going to be buried. So they would mark a grave for themselves, uh, putting a marker down to say um, that mission was a priority. God's call to them was a priority. And so here we have uh, a situation where mission has changed. And um, it's opened the door in, in some ways for people like me uh, involved in a, a mission organization, sending teams out and so on. Um, and so we uh, do so. But it doesn't matter whether mission is here in the UK or whether it's in some uh, remote part of the world, God's mission remains the same. It remains the same in such a way that God wants to bring individuals to himself and to bring them to a place where they uh, can accept uh, that they are sinners, can accept the forgiveness and salvation that is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross and bring them to faith uh, through repentance of their sins. But it's impossible for me to just uh, tell you everything that you need to perhaps know on that subject in such a short period of time. But what we're going to do is, is take some uh, stepping stones, if you like, uh, to look at mission. Going backwards to creation, looking at the fall, the covenants of God, the types and figures, as theologians call them, um, and the Messiah, the church, and the second coming. Now, we're not going to spend an awful lot of time on each of these because we'll be here all night. I don't want to have to slip into African preaching mode and keep you here for six hours or something. Um, but uh, we're going to look at some of these anyway. So we begin at the creation, obviously. We've read that scripture. So God created mankind in his own image. In the Im image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them from Genesis 1. And so there is a, 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 an important uh, reference here to the fact that we, as individuals, each one of us, whether we're Christian believers or not, have uh, a have the image of God uh, upon us and in us. The creation of mankind is God's top work, the best job that he did. If you look at the, the creation story, you'll find that every piece of creation that he put his hand to, he would call it good. But when it came to mankind, he looked at that and said, it is very good. It's his crowning work of uh, the word spoken uh, out and creation taking place. However, the, the creation, God's creation, mankind, has been spoiled by sin, and that has an, an effect on every other part of creation as well. As we can see, even in our world today, that the uh, effects that mankind has had through their own greed and so on has had on our world has uh, spoiled that as well. But God's plan is to redeem 
mankind to reconcile this spoilt man to himself. And even creation is going to benefit from that. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, Jesus challenges uh, the religious establishment. They had set out to trap him, sent one or two of the young guys along with a, a question that was to trap Jesus. And the question was about where do we pay our taxes? <clears throat> and Jesus uh, brings, uh, asks somebody for a coin. And they bring him a coin. And on the coin, he looks at it on both sides. And in, and in these days, uh, Caesar had his image on both sides of a coin. And so he holds the coin up and he says to them, whose image is on this coin? And of course, the answer they give is, of course, it's Caesar's image that's on the coin. And he says to them, well, pay to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is due. Pay your taxes. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but give to God that which is God's. And we read that scripture in Genesis about God making us in his image for us to realize that when Jesus was speaking about this, he was saying to them, their religious establishment, you've got yourself entangled in the ways of this world, but you need to remember that on each of your lives is something that God owns. The Bible tells us that we have been bought with a price, that we're not our own. And therefore, Jesus said to these people, give to Caesar that which is Caesar, Caesar's, but give to God that which is God's. In other words, where is God's image? It's on each of our lives, and we need to give ourselves over to God. And so, when Jesus came, he didn't come uh, to, to win who wants to be a millionaire or something. He came to die in order that he might have us, that he might have that image restored and us for his inheritance, mankind for his inheritance. And so our call to mission, we need to keep that in mind, that when we communicate the gospel, we're communicating it to those on whom God's image rests. We, as a, a part of our work, go to certain parts of the world, countries where war has been uh, very much part of their recent history. Go to Burundi, for example, and Rwanda, where we've seen uh, some tragic things taking place, some awful things happening. And if you look at Operation World, or if you uh, looked at some of the back copies of Operation World, I can't remember what it says in the most recent one, but in recent uh, copies, you'll find that it said that Rwanda was 96% Christian, and that Burundi had similar statistics. 96, almost 100% Christian. So the question is, who is doing the killing in these countries? The question is, who is raising up a sword against the image of God in another human being? So we must keep in mind who has got God's image. Every human being we come across has the image of God upon them. So the image of God is upon us, and yet along comes the fall. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, 
verses 1 to 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, that's the serpent said, did God actually say, uh, and then she took the fruit, um, I'm sort of paraphrasing it a little bit here, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate it, and the eyes of them both were opened. And so um, the fall comes along. This image of God has now been tarnished, it's been spoiled, and there has been a separation that has taken place between mankind and God. However, God makes uh, an attempt, very many attempts, to reach mankind and to provide ways for them to find their sins forgiven and to redeem them back into his care once again. And as you go through Scripture, you'll find many, many uh, statements made by God, and the thread of which is, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 32, for example, uh, uses these very words the other way around. It says, uh, they will be my people and I will be their God. And if you look through the whole of Scripture, you'll find that thread that goes all the way through the Scripture, that God wants to keep this contact, to keep his hand outstretched to humankind. And he does that by making covenants with people. He made a, a covenant with Adam. And uh, one of the parts of the covenant from Genesis 1 talks about man having dominion over everything uh, that has been created, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and so on. And so God has given responsibility to man, but he says, there's part, you've got a part to play in this. Do not eat of the tree. And so, um, of course, we know that Adam and Eve both ate of the tree and they fell from grace, fell from God's favor then. Then in, in Genesis 9, uh, another covenant is made with Noah and God promised humanity would never again be destroyed uh, through the flood. He gave the rainbow as a, a tremendous example uh, of his covenant, and he said, every time you see the rainbow, you'll remember that my covenant has been made never to destroy you again by a flood. And of course, uh, um, the rainbow, of course, has been hijacked in most recent days, uh, but we still want to hold on to the truth of that, uh, that the covenant of God has been made with mankind. Then God makes an, a covenant with Abraham. Now, there are many covenants, so I can't go into them all in detail, but many covenants that God has made with people uh, and individuals on the way through. Uh, Abraham uh, was told that he would be the father of nations. Genesis 12, I will make you, uh, I and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and so on. In chapter 15, there is a remarkable story, and if you ever get the chance uh, to read it, then read it in, in detail. But uh, it's a covenant that God makes with Abraham and in these days, covenants were made by uh, taking a sacrificed animal and splitting the animal in two, putting one side of the animal here, one side there, and then the two parties would take hands with one another and walk through between the two halves of the covenant, and they would make the covenant between one another as they go through the sacrifice. But you'll find that in 
in the book of Genesis that Abraham's covenant is different from that. And if you read it, you'll find that God made Abraham go to sleep, and God went through the sacrifice and made the covenant all by himself, which is an interesting point. Very often covenants are are two-sided. You've got one side says this, and the other side says that. One side says, well, if you do this, then then you have to, we'll do that, and so on, to make the covenant together on that. But here, in this particular story, um, God makes the covenant with Abraham while Abraham is asleep, knowing full well that Abraham couldn't uh, do the other side of the covenant by himself. He couldn't do it. And so God had to, to, to say that I'll do both sides. I will keep both sides of the covenant for you. And so he makes the covenant there. And it's a remarkable uh, story. Uh, so please take the time, if you can, ch- chapter 15 of Genesis, and read that, and you'll see God appearing uh, and going through the covenant while Abraham sleeps. And it's a remarkable situation. And of course, if we look forward to the cross, we find that God has made a covenant with us through Christ. And we'll come on to the new covenant in a minute. But he's made a covenant with us, and he's done it by himself. He didn't ask us to do anything. He has gone to the cross on his own. He went there. Jesus went to the cross by himself. And so, knowing full well that we can't withhold, we can't keep up our side of the bargain, even if we wanted to, we can't do it. And so, it's a remarkable connection between old and new. And then God makes a covenant with Moses um, and the the people of Israel uh, that the presence of God would be with them. And Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments. So here is a covenant that has two sides to it. You do this and I'll do that. And then the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, of course, are part of that as well. It's a a two-sided covenant. And then we come forward to a covenant that is made with the whole world. And so if you look back uh, throughout the Old Testament, you have a covenant that's made with a man. You have a covenant that's made with a family. You've got a covenant that's made with a nation, and the nation being Israel. And then you have a covenant that's made with the whole world. And in John chapter 1, verse 29 Uh, It says there, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the the world. So it's not a sacrifice for a person. It's not a sacrifice for a family. It's not a sacrifice only for a nation. This is a sacrifice for the whole world that's coming to us in Christ. John's Gospel says, Chapter 3, verse 16, probably the best-known verse in the whole of Christendom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so there are tremendous covenants that God has made with him, with us, with humankind. Years ago, when I was a a child, very many years ago, (laughs) when I was a child. There was an old preacher who used to come to our church. I come from a brethren background, and so 
we used to have different preachers every Sunday night, um, often uh, uh, sort of coming back in a year's time, that kind of thing, cyclically like that. And this old preacher used to say these words, and it's a thing that I've never forgotten. He used to say, the old, talking about the Old Testament, the old is in the new concealed, and the new is in the old revealed. In other words, we can learn so much about the gospel from the Old Testament, that there's so much there that we can see, and that's why I'm coming to this whole uh, theological point, if you like, about types uh, of Christ. Some are very obvious to us, and they don't really need an awful lot of detection. We can spot them very easily. Um, the, the obvious one is, is Abraham and Isaac going up onto a mountain. And, uh, of course, as children, I, I remember hearing this in the Sunday school about this wee boy who was being taken by his dad up into a mountain. And he's not so, so stupid, this wee boy. He, he uh, looks around himself and he sees uh, some firewood. He sees some means of starting a fire. He sees all the gear that's necessary to create a sacrifice. Uh, but then he, he's looking around and he says, well, but there's no lamb. Where, where is the sacrifice lamb? Where is it? And, of course, we know the famous words uh, of Abraham are, well, God will provide for himself a lamb. And, of course, when we hear the words of John the Baptist, uh, we recognize that this story has something to do with what's happening in the New Testament. And, of course, uh, Abraham and Isaac go up onto the mountain. Abraham ties Isaac on top of the, the sacrifice, and he's about to sort of plunge his knife into him when uh, he notices a ram that's caught in a thicket uh, behind him, and he uses that. Now, let me, I come from a farming background. My father was a shepherd all his life. I started off my own working life as a shepherd. And so we, we, we often are confused by this, the whole business of a sacrificial lamb. It's not this wee fluffy wobbly thing that's in the fields around March, April time. That's not the kind of lamb that it's talking about. It's talking about a fully grown, 18-month-old strong animal. So it's not something that's easily caught, easily dealt with. It's something that is fully grown, fully matured, fully perfect in everything. And so when we think about the lamb here, Jesus says, uh, God says he's going to provide himself a lamb on this mountain. And of course, a lamb is provided. And uh, it's one caught there. And so uh, Isaac is taken off the altar, uh, probably weeps some sweat from his brow, and uh, this ram is put on there. And if we go take a jump forward into Revelation, you'll see that story of, of the, the um, lion of the tribe of Judah in chapter 5, I think it is, of Revelation. Um, John is standing there, and no one is worthy to open the scrolls uh, of the book. And the voice from heaven says, look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And John looks around, and he says, I turned, and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain, a lamb with seven horns as if it had been slain. And so again, it's talking about a fully grown animal, a strong animal that has been sacrificed. And so these types come through uh, the Scripture to us. Uh, the Messiah has been prophesied uh, throughout the Old Testament. He's coming, uh, they're saying. And these little 
beams of light are shown onto certain areas and certain stories. And uh, Tim Keller puts it beautifully when he says, he talks about Jesus being the true and better Adam, for example, who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. And then he says, Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And so Keller lists a whole number of these insights from Scripture, these types that we can see in the Old Testament that refer very clearly to what's coming, both in prophecy and just in these little uh, beams of light, as it were, that are coming uh, in all sorts of different stories. And so now we can look in the same way that Abraham didn't miss out on sacrificing his son. We look at Jesus, and we can look at God in the face and say that you've taken up your son to a mountain, the mountain of Calvary, and you've sacrificed him for us. And we can say to him, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. You see, we have been given Jesus in order that we might be able to have the salvation that he's talking about. And so there are many, many types that we can go through in the Scripture. Moses, for example, stood in the gap between the people and the Lord, and he mediated a new covenant. That's exactly what Jesus did. He, he hung in the gap, as it were, between God and mankind and mediated a new covenant for us. And so all of these covenants, all of these types are there for us to read in the Old Testament. Instead of uh, Jesus is the better, the true and better public defender is one that he refers to. Instead of being the accuser of the brethren, he is one who declares us blameless and covers our wrongdoing with a robe of righteousness if we will only but turn to him. You see, God has been on a mission from the beginning of time, even before time itself. Before the world began, Christ was crucified. And so we have a mission of God going on. Very often when I'm referring to the organization I work for, Mission International, I kind of, kind of refer to it as mine. <laughs> it's my mission. Well, it's not my mission. This is God's mission. Every one of us are on a mission for God. We've been sent by Him in order to do that. So the church comes along after all of this is happening. John the Baptist comes, declares who Jesus is, and here we are, the church uh, of this generation and today. The church exists to give glory to God by word, by action, by prayer, by worship, all of these things. The church exists to make known the glory of God to, to this generation. Psalm 96 says this, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. We have a responsibility in terms of mission 
to go and say among the nations, the Lord reigns, whether it's our own nation, whether it's neighboring nations around us, or whether it's to the extreme parts of the world. We have been called to tell among the nations, the Lord reigns. The church exists to encounter and serve the world by bringing to all mankind the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, which just means good news. And so we have got a call upon us as individuals or as a church at large, we have a call to go and serve God. So what do we do in the light of the mission that God has put before us? There is a scripture that, uh, I can't find the reference in my head, but it's um, a scripture in, in, I think it's the book of Acts, where it says that David served God in his generation. And what I would put to you this evening is to say this, that David could not serve God in any other generation but his own generation. And that same statement applies to each one of us. I can't serve God in my father's generation. I can't serve God in my son's generation. The only generation I have is this generation, the one that I live in. And so like David, I need to serve God in my generation. You need to serve God in the generation in which you live. There is no other opportunity. Coming to the end of one's life and knowing that you missed that would be a terrible thing. Being part of a mission organization, I often speak to people who will say to me, well, um, I was going to be going out to, to India as a missionary nurse, or I was going to be going to somewhere uh, as a missionary doctor, or I was going to be going to serve God in this country or that country, but um, I went to university, I got married and had children, so it never worked. And so they, they, they have a great loss within themselves. And one of the things that we've been able to do is to say, well, why don't you come now? Why don't you come and serve God now? The skills that you have, the, the capabilities that you've got, why don't you come and serve God now uh, rather than miss this opportunity? And so we have an opportunity in our lifetime to serve God in our generation. And then finally, the second coming the target of this divine mission is what we read in Revelation, that John turned and saw a great multitude that could not be numbered from every tribe, every people, every nation. And so there is a call upon us as God's people to somehow reach the world with this gospel that he's given to us to be able to communicate with people. You know, although some may differ in their view of this, there is no central shrine for Christians to travel to. Many religions in the world have a special place in the world that's more holy than anywhere else. Christians don't have that. You don't need a special hat. <laughs> you don't need a special robe. You come as you are. The gospel is translatable into every culture in the world. 
dignifying each as they become a valid vehicle for God's revelation. Every tribe, every nation. It is wonderful. It's wonderful to go to remote parts of the world and turn up and find a church there that somehow or another the gospel has reached there. A friend of mine um, was talking about this and he, he said that there are many places he goes in the world and there is no church but there is a sign on the wee shop down the road saying Coca-Cola. <laughs> and he said, look, I would love to be in a position where I was able to plant a church everywhere there's a Coca-Cola sign. <laughs> but it's true, Coca-Cola have done it. They've got their mission. They've gone out there and they've given people what they think they want. But the gospel is far more important than that. And people in the world sometimes don't know what they want, but they're crying out for something. They're crying out for something. And sometimes they get themselves involved in all sorts of stuff. Um, many, many. Uh, we had a pastor here from Uganda just recently, and he was talking about uh, the church where he planted his first church, a little grass hut. This church has now grown. There are 700 churches connected then. It's a huge uh, organization now. But when they began, there were all these little um, um, grass shrines that had been built for people to sacrifice to their ancestors. You know, people get uh, into all sorts of stuff to try and fill this void that they have in themselves. And Jesus has come that we might have that void filled, that sin taken away, that soul restored back to him again. So no language or culture has the exclusive rights to the gospel. Each one has uh, the ability to convert the words of Jesus into their own language. It's a wonderful thing for me that sometimes I go to places I don't know a word of their language, and yet you go into church in the morning, the first thing you hear is hallelujah. It's a word that is used universally to worship God. So God wanted his revelation to reach every people, as clearly stated in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and so on. The church is made for mission. And so it could be argued, I suppose, that if a church is too inward-looking, well, it's not really a church at all. It's only a club. If we come with that idea of trying to improve ourselves uh, and, and the sort of way that we do things, we kind of make ourselves better looking uh, all the time, then perhaps we've missed the idea that mission is what we're called to. For 20 centuries now, God's people have faithfully led by the Spirit as empires, as we prayed earlier on, empires have risen and fallen. They've been obedient to the call of the church. Just before we finish, and I'm going to finish just in a moment, but we often see success in mission uh, the wrong way. We see it upside down. We see it back to front somehow. Take the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, who met Philip on the road in Acts chapter 8, 
Why was he there in the first place? Well, the, t- the Bible tells us in Acts 8, verse 26 and onward, it says, an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him. Now, I don't know if you've been able to keep up with a chariot, some of you guys that are in sport, if you're able to run faster than a chariot or not, but he ran and he joined the chariot. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture he was reading was uh, from Isaiah 53, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life, uh, for his life is taken away from the earth. Now, I began to think about that and to ponder on that, and I, I remembered uh, the other queen of Sheba, of Ethiopia, the queen of Sheba who uh, was, uh, who came to, to find out about Solomon and all the wonders uh, that's, that was represented there in Solomon's kingdom. And in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. She came to test Solomon with hard questions. Here was somebody who, with all the riches that she had, was seeking for something. And so sometimes it's not just the ordinary person on the street that we're called to meet, that we're called to meet with and speak to those uh, who are of high estate. But here is the Queen of Sheba, and Solomon um, had to answer some of the hard questions that she had. But it says there that she heard of Solomon's fame and his relationship with the Lord. That was the thing that was drawing her uh, in, and she had to ask him some hard questions. What's all this about? And of course, the New Testament calls us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. We've got to be prepared and ready for that. And so, here is this uh, eunuch, this Ethiopian man who has met Philip, uh, engaged with him on this uh, on this chariot, and he hears the gospel. He is baptized, and, and off he goes to Africa, to Ethiopia. So the Queen of Sheba, even a thousand years later, Queen Candace is sending her top officials, that's who this man was, to Jerusalem to find out more, to discover more about this God. And Philip meets this Ethiopian and he speaks to him. And we think, well, that was it. Off he goes back to Africa again and uh, it's all done with. But I want to tell you this, from that one man, some tremendous things have taken place. I don't know if you know about the north of Africa, but Augustine of Hippo, which is somewhere in Algeria, um, was a theologian, a writer. Tertullian of Carthage, which is in Tunis, 
Athanasius of Alexandria, which is in Egypt. For the next 400 years after the Ethiopian eunuch had gone back to Africa, the next 400 years were a center where Africa became a center for theological teaching and writing. For one man going back. Now, we can't prove that link necessarily, but it's interesting that out of that one person, something tremendous takes place. Even in Ethiopia today, I was reading an article just uh, the other day about Ethiopia where Christian pastors are being beheaded because they're trying to preach the gospel into their nation. The, the Prime Minister, uh, Abiy Ahmed, uh, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, is a born-again Christian. And he has done some tremendous work since he began. He has released political prisoners. It's a dangerous thing to do in a political hotbed. He's released all the political prisoners. He's freed the press. Say what you like. <laughs> and uh, it's caused him no end of trouble, but he believes it's the right thing to do because he's a Christian believer. He's in Ethiopia, where this man went to all these years ago. And so, we sometimes can look and say, well, success is about getting your name on the telly. Success is about having a big ministry. Success is about, about thousands of people, people coming to know the Lord. That would be wonderful, and I'm not decrying that at all. But success is being obedient to do what God tells you to do. That's the success. We're not required to find anything else. Philip was obedient. He went to visit this man and taught him what the Scripture was saying and how that was important for the, the gospel as it was being presented. And out of that comes a remarkable situation. You see, we think we've got it all cracked. We've got the church organized. We're in place. We're done. But we don't know what God has planned for us. We don't know what's ahead of us, really. We can try to look through Daniel and we can try to look through the book of Revelation and work it out. Well, if you do, then you're a better man than me, Gungaden, as they say, because it's a very complicated thing. We can't work it out. Jesus, the, the book of Revelation tells us Jesus is coming in clouds, not coming visibly. He's coming in clouds, and then every eye will see him. And so we can say, well, I don't feel called. I don't feel called. Well, forgive me for being blunt, but whether you feel called or not, you are called because you've taken Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Uh, it's an oxymoron to say, no, Lord. <laughs> you just don't do that. You can't do that. If someone's your Lord, you can't say no to them. So if you're not called, then there's a problem. Here's what William Booth says, the founder of the Salvation Army. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. 
Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look to Christ, look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. You see, we are called. We are called. C.T. Studd put it much more succinctly. Uh, he said, Some wish to live within sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. You see, there is a call out there. It's a plan that God has had from eternity till now. It's here for us today. And we ought to think carefully as we present ourselves before him with regard to his mission. Now, I would like to gather you all up in an airplane and take you to somewhere uh, in the world and uh, put you to work. Um, that would be wonderful. If you feel you want to go, then come and see me. I'd be delighted about that. But I know that it would be a bit of a struggle getting you all to do it at the same time. So I'll give myself a few years to convince you all it's a good idea. Um, but be ready. Hear what God is saying. There is a world out there. We're here, forgive me for saying so, but we're here in this church, we're quite a sort of middle-class church. But there are, I don't know if you, I live back-to-back -back with Petty Street. You go up Petty Street, put your money through a letterbox, you'll get a wee white bag put out to you again. Not that I've tried it, but I happen to know that it happens. You can buy your drugs just about any of the flats up and down Petty Street. We've got a world out there that is in need. The students in the Students' Union, you'll be preparing yourself for Missions Week uh, coming up and so on. Be prepared and ready to serve God in this generation, in your generation. Let that covenant that he has made with mankind be broadcast. That covenant that is there for the whole world be broadcast. So that one day we can look with John on that, that, that huge crowd of people from every tribe, every people, every nation under the sun. We thank God for his grace that he's shown to us. We thank God for his favor that he's made it possible that we as sinners can be saved and brought back and reconciled to God once again. It's wonderful. And yet, there are many who have never heard the gospel once. Many in our own nation, a nation which used to be called the land of the book, have never heard the gospel once. And so we have a challenge ahead of us. And I didn't come here tonight to beat you up, but I did come to challenge you. And I do pray that God would put a challenge on our hearts for the sake of this city, for the sake of this nation, and for the sake of the nations of the world. May God bless you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your favor that you've shown to us through Christ. We thank you that you came because you loved this whole world and you sacrificed yourself. You went through all of that alone, recognizing that we couldn't do it, and yet we benefit from what you have done on the cross. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us as we respond to that, knowing that there are many, many others who as yet don't know you, we cry out to you to help us. 
because, Lord, we know we can't do this by ourselves. We need you to guide us. We need you to empower us. And we need you to lead us in your ways. Help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.